name is Nick Schatz. I'm one of the pastors here and excited to open God's Word with you and look at uh, the Tenth Commandment. We've been talking about the Ten Commandments, uh, known as guidelines and guardrails. I uh, want to start out today by talking about a monkey. Once upon a time, there was a monkey, and he was sitting in a banana tree, and he was very hungry. And he knew that one of those bananas in that banana tree was a magic banana. And if he could get a hold of this one magic banana, then he would never be hungry again. And so he went on a quest to find that banana. He ate one banana, and he was still hungry. Obviously, that wasn't the one. So he ate a second banana, and he was still hungry. Obviously, that wasn't the one either. He ate a third banana, and then a fourth banana, and then a fifth banana, until finally he ate ten bananas. And after eating the tenth banana, he finally discovered that must have been the magic one, because he wasn't hungry anymore. And of course, the first thought that went through his head was, it's a shame I didn't eat that tenth banana first, because then I wouldn't have wasted the other bananas. Obviously, you can uh, imagine that he was very disappointed when five or six hours later he was hungry again. Maybe the tenth banana wasn't the magic banana. I should go back to the banana tree and try again until I find the magic banana. I think the truth is that all of us are a little bit like that monkey. We are hungry. We're, we're hungry for something, and, and, and there's plenty of good bananas, good, healthy, good bananas surrounding us that can fulfill our hunger for a time, but, but we know that there's, we, we believe in our hearts there's one magic banana that, that's really going to satisfy us. It's, it's really going to take care of all of our desires and, and make us happy or fulfilled or, or, or full in some way, and we tend to have that monkey brain in our heads as well. Well, today we're going to look at the Tenth Commandment, all right, and this is how it reads. It's from uh, Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet is the 10th commandment. Now, maybe it strikes you as a little odd that this is the culmination of the 10 commandments. I mean, they start out pretty lofty, right? I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. And then it ends with this. Hey, stop looking at that mule too much, right? I mean, this, doesn't this seem kind of strange? I am the Lord your God. And then he talks about coveting, about something that happens in my heart and mind. It's kind of a victimless crime. I mean, what's the big deal anyways with coveting? But the truth is that coveting is a begetting sin because it begets uh, us committing the other commandments. If I were to uh, commit adultery, it's only because I started by coveting my neighbor's wife or someone else's or some other woman. If I steal from someone else, it only is happening because at first, before that ever happened, I was coveting something that belonged to someone else in my heart. If I ever break the second commandment, for instance, and I worship other idols, it, it only happens because in my heart of hearts, I have coveted what I believe some other god or, 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 or thing or, or entity can do for me that my heavenly father has not gifted me with already. Coveting leads to other sins. It is a mother sin because coveting gives birth to envy and to lust and to greed. These are all forms of what is under the umbrella of coveting. Coveting is a begetting sin. It's a mother sin. And if I'm honest, if I were to be honest with you, I feel like I live in a constant state, a chronic state of coveting and wanting more. As I looked at this verse, it reminded me of my first job out of college. I graduated college in 2009, which was a fantastic time to launch into a new career, right, and find a job. So I started my first, my, uh, my first full-time ministry job in 2009 after I had graduated uh, from college. And uh, I, t I, I, I took on a pastoring responsibility of this small church, and I was making a whopping $20,000 a year. 20 grand. I mean, that's enough to buy 
I don't know, a good used car or maybe a doghouse or something. I was, but I was, you know, I was content. I, I, was, I was newly married, and my wife and I moved to this new town, and uh, I was making a salary that I was very happy with. But after just a couple of years of that, I found that I, that wasn't quite enough. I, I felt like I, I needed more. And there's obviously many more reasons why my wife and I moved, but we moved to Texas. And I took another job, not a ministry job. It was, it was a different job in the chauffeur industry. And uh, I was making not quite, but nearly double what I was making at that first job. And I remember thinking this thought as I, as I signed the papers, you know, uh, uh, agreeing, you know, the, your tax forms and all that kind of stuff and signing on for the job and doing the paperwork. I remember this thought went through my mind. I never imagined that I'd be making this much money. And looking back, it wasn't, it wasn't really that much money. Most of you watching probably make way more than what it was. But, but I remember thinking in that moment, man, I, I, didn't ever, I never thought that I'd be making this much money. Fast forward a few years later, I took another job, and it was more money than that. Fast forward a few years later, and I was taking another job that made more than that. And I still sometimes find myself wishing I made more money, even though I'm making more now than I ever thought I would back in 2009 when I took that first job, perfectly contented with $20,000. I'm always wanting more. Now, I want to be clear about something. Don't get me wrong here. There's nothing wrong with desiring. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with actually coveting, as long as you're coveting the right thing. In fact, if you le- look at the Hebrew text, this, this word covet, you shall not covet, you shall not covet. In Hebrew, there's no distinction between the word covet and uh, it, it sometimes it's translated as desire or pleasure. And, and this very word in Hebrew if you look at the, old, the, the Hebrew text that's been translated into English, that same word is actually used to describe things that I should covet, things that I should desire, things that I should take pleasure in. So in Hebrew, there's, it's, it's coveting something good or coveting something bad. It's not that covet is a bad thing. Covet is a good thing as long as you covet the right thing. Do you see, uh, we see our neighbor's possessions and we covet their money. But the truth is we don't really want their money. We want to be able to take care of our own needs and have a little bit left over to help with other people's needs. That's what we truly desire and covet. But it's masked in this idea that we covet more money. We see our neighbor's lifestyle, and we covet their spouse, we covet their family, but we don't really want their family. What we really want is, is deep relationships with other people and to find satisfaction in the relationships with others. It's when I turn it into a negative coveting where I want, I want your family, I want your relationships. That's when it actually becomes destructive, and I, I keep myself from actually being able to have those relationships with other people. Unfortunately, if we're not careful, we can end up spending our entire life climbing the ladder, and then we finally get to the top of the ladder and realize that we're leaned up against the wrong building. There's a a magic banana out there somewhere, but it's very disappointing to find out that we eat the banana and then we're just bloated at the end, right? You shall not covet. Hey, let me ask you this. Have you ever been surprised at yourself by how badly you were coveting something? Have you ever sort of came to yourself and realized, my goodness, I can't believe that I'm thinking this or feeling this or, or acting in this way. I can't believe I'm coveting something this bad. Has, have you ever shocked yourself or surprised yourself by your own coveting? Have you ever found yourself infatuated by something that you saw? Maybe it was something you saw in a commercial. Maybe you saw a peer have it. Maybe you were a kid and you saw you know, this, this other kid down the street or on the bus got this new toy and, and instantly you were infatuated with this thing that you didn't even know existed 24 hours ago. You didn't even know you wanted it 24 hours ago, but ever since you saw it, you haven't been able to stop thinking about it and thinking about how you can obtain it. Have you ever caught yourself or been surprised at the way that you were spending so much time researching this new thing 
that you want. Again, a couple days ago, you didn't even know you wanted it, but now you have spent countless hours on Facebook Marketplace and on Craigslist looking for the perfect deal, and, and you're price comparing Amazon.com from, from Walmart.com, and oh, maybe Target has it, and, and, and you're spending this uh, uh, un unbelievable amount of time looking for this item that just a few days later you didn't even know you wanted, and now you're surprised that I've wasted days looking for this item, and you become infatuated with that item. Have you ever been surprised at yourself? Have you ever caught yourself doing something strange or odd because you're coveting? Like you go looking around for the ha house, maybe I can sell something so that I can earn enough money to, to get this thing, or, or I'm going to look up my bank account and see how much money is left in my savings account. I know that money is for emergencies only, but what are the chances I'm going to have an emergency? I mean, I, I need this thing that I just discovered yesterday. I need it now, right? So I, maybe I can cash in my, my emergency fund in order to, to get this thing. Or, or maybe you felt yourself spontaneously called to be an Uber driver over the weekend, all so that you can obtain this thing that you didn't even know existed, a couple days earlier. Have you ever been surprised at yourself by the way that you act or think or treat other people because of coveting that comes into your life? Somewhere in this tree, there's a magic banana. And if I eat that banana, I will never be hungry again. You and I are smarter than monkeys, thankfully, but unfortunately, we tend to act with a monkey brain. And what we need to do is learn to think like a disciple and not like a monkey. There is no magic banana that will cure your hunger. What I want to show you here is a pattern that we see throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, of what happens when we covet. It is a pattern of see, covet, take, and hide. Uh, full disclosure, to give credit to whom credit is due, I, I took this pattern from a podcast that was done by Melissa Kruger. If you look at hfcinfo.com and pull up the sermon notes, I put a link to that. Uh, I, I took some of her content as I as I wrote this sermon, so feel free to look that up on your own time if you're more interested. But here's the pattern that we see come up over and over throughout our Bibles. See, and seeing leads to coveting. And coveting leads to taking. And taking leads to hiding. So let's talk for a moment about something that happens in your head every single day without you even realizing it. All day long, you and I see things that you don't have. You see commercials. You see ads on social media. You, you, you see things that your peers own. And this seeing inside of your mind, inside of your heart, it leads you to coveting. I could have that. I could own that. I could live like that. And then your mind becomes preoccupied with how you can obtain that which you do not have. I'll give an example of how this works. I wonder how many of you have ever played on one of these. That's an Atari. All right. One day when I was a kid, I was a, I was a young boy. And I was with, with my, some of my cousins at my granddad's house, my, my grandma's house. And I was, we were rummaging through their closet, you know, looking at old ties or whatever. And we, we came across this box that had this, this old ancient, this ancient relic in it, this, this Atari system, one of the first gaming systems as far as I know. And pretty simple. It just has a joystick and a button on it. That's kind of it. And, and you would not believe how many hours we spent on that, like, 70s carpet, that, that shaggy rug carpet in my granddad's. Uh, bedroom on this tiny little box TV. This was before flat screens. And, and we, we were playing for endless hours Pong and Galactica. And there, there was one about this, this, this plane that shot stuff and tried not to get shot. I forgot the name of it. But we spent countless hours. And I could not tell you how happy and satisfied I was. I had found the magic banana that cured my boredom, right? I was, I was so satisfied with this. Until the day that I went to another cousin's house and I saw one of these. Nintendo 64. It was the newest 
the newest gaming console that had come out by Nintendo. And I wasn't sure why they called it a Nintendo 64. I assumed it was because it looked like there were 64 buttons on the controller. I was, I was overwhelmed having uh, gotten used to this, and now I'm jumping to this, and I had a hard time with it. But, but within minutes, I had this insatiable desire where I had to get a Nintendo 64. Hey, Dad, for Christmas. Hey, Dad, for my birthday. Uh, th- thankfully, my birthday and Christmas, birthday's in June, so you know, I, I was kind of spread out and when I was able to get toys and things like that. But, but I, I just I had to have one of these machines. And the weird thing is, moments before I saw this thing, I had never given a single thought to a Nintendo 64. I had never asked for a Nintendo 64. I had never desired to play a Nintendo 64, but it all happened because I saw it. Because seeing leads to coveting. Coveting leads to taking. And taking leads to hiding. There's a, ban- there's a magic banana somewhere out there. And if I get that banana, I will not be hungry again. You want to know why coveting leads to taking? It's because we have this, this monkey brain. We have this assumption in our head that once I obtain what I cannot have, I will be happy. Happiness will be obtained by getting this thing. See, covet, take, and hide. All right, I think I've given you an idea of, of what this pattern means here. See, covet, take, hide. You can write that down, or we'll talk about that more. But here's an example of what I mean by this in the Bible. Okay, here's a, here's a story from Genesis 3. This is the story of Adam and Eve, right? When the woman, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable. Once again, that's the same exact Hebrew word used in Exodus when he talks about coveting. When she saw the fruit and she desired it, She took some of it and ate it. And she gave some also to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They saw, coveted, they took, and then they ended up hiding. Here's another example of what I mean. Let's look at another example from Joshua 7. I believe it's up on the screen here. This is the story of Achan. Uh, what happens in this story is that uh, Yahweh had told God's people to, to go and, and destroy this ancient city known as Jericho. The people had fled, and, and, and the city was still there, but it was filled with, with idols, and it just represented everything that was, that was opposed to God's people. So the instruction was, burn the city, burn everything in the city. Don't keep or take anything from the city. Completely destroy everything. But there was one name, man named Achan who came across some garments, some clothing. He came across some shekels, which represented the money of their time, and he just couldn't bring himself to burn it. And here's what happens. He ends up confessing this later. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw the plunder of a beautiful robe from Babylonia and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold. It's funny how specific he was. When I saw the, and he mentions like the exact amount of money that he saw. When I saw this stuff, I coveted them, and that covening led to this. I took them, and after taking them, they are hidden in the ground. He buried them. He, took, he stole these Babylonian garments, but he wouldn't dare wear them. He stole this money, but he wouldn't dare spend it. He, he hid it. He, he saw, covet, took, and then he hid from that. Now, here's the pattern that we see represented, and here's the lie that all of us have been programmed to believe. If I have, I'll be happy. But the truth we have to learn today, the, the, the guideline, the guardrail that God is setting up for us in the Tenth Commandment is this. Just because I have doesn't mean I'll be happy. Now, you all know this intellectually, but inside of your heart, you actually have a monkey brain. And you believe there's a magic banana out there somewhere that's going to satisfy your hunger. But the truth is, just because I have doesn't mean that I will be happy. 
and I think all of us are aware of this, that we are all in this insatiable hunt for that which is going to make us happy, especially in Western culture. Happiness is the highest value in our culture right now in our society. And we'll stop at nothing to find happiness. We'll feed addictions in order to be happy. We'll max out credit cards and get payment plans and take out loans. We'll, we'll spend whatever money it takes, even if it's not our money, right? We'll spend it in order to be happy. We'll leave spouses and rip families apart to be happy. We'll change our gender if need be in order to be happy. We have an insatiable desire deep within us to find happiness at all costs. But here's the paradox of this statement. Eve obtained what she wanted, but then she hid. And people who hide aren't happy. Isn't that a given? People who hide aren't happy. They took, and then it led to hiding, not to happiness. Just because I have doesn't mean I'll be happy. And the worst part is that this process, see, covet, take, hide, this process tends to repeat itself if we can't fix the root problem of what we are desiring. Once I make this much money, then... But then we make that, and it becomes, once I get married, and maybe that becomes, once I have children, and, and maybe that becomes, once I have this house. I mean, there's, there's always something more that I want. So the process continues to repeat itself until we fix the problem, until we fix our monkey brain, right? I know there's a magic banana out there somewhere that's going to cure my hunger. and if it, Maybe it's the 10th banana. Oh, I'm hungry again. Maybe it's the 11th banana. We continue to repeat this cycle. Here's another example that I want us to look at. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. David was the king of Israel, and here's what happens in this story. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around the roof of the palace. Roofs could be walked on uh, based on how buildings were built. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Her name was Bathsheba. It doesn't say it here in this text. And David sent someone to find out about her. That's when the coveting begins. The man said she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her, to obtain her, to take her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. If you know the rest of the story, you know that it doesn't end well. This, this woman was married to another man, and, and after this happened, she became pregnant. And so David tried to cover it up. He tried to hide what had happened, and this is what it says. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He's the commander of the army. And he said, hey, I, I, want, you to, I want you to send, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. He's trying to cover up the pregnancy that has happened with Bathsheba. And then withdraw from him so that, so that Uriah will be killed. He, it's a murder plot to take care of Uriah. Here's a man who had everything that you and I could imagine. But there was a magic banana. There, there was a woman that he didn't have. He already had women, but there was a woman he didn't have. See, covet, take, and then he tries to hide. Just because I have doesn't mean, just because I have doesn't mean that I'll be happy. I'll get to that text in just a minute. Here's a question I have for you. What is the big idea? What's the big problem with coveting in the first place? Why is it such a problem? In fact, here, here's a question you may be answering. You, you know, uh, Pastor Nick, you, you, you and George have been saying this whole series that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are not under the Old Testament commands, right? There's about 613 commandments in the Old Testament. So 613, thou shalt and thou shalt not. Somebody counted them one day, some rabbi a long time ago. And uh, it's, uh, many scholars believe that those 613 commandments are just expositions of the Big Ten. All right, so the big ten, com- the ten commandments form the basis for all the other commandments that come up in the Old Testament. But as Christians, Jesus has told us, no, I have fulfilled the Old Testament. You, you do not need to, uh, to follow. You are not obligated to put yourself under any of the commandments, including the ten commandments. You only have two commandments as a Christian. Love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. That's all you have to worry about if you're going to follow Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
what's the big idea? What's the big deal with coveting? It's a victimless crime. It's something that happens in my head. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not actually taking anything. I mean, what's the big deal with coveting in the first place? Well, the answer to that question is found in Romans 13. The commandments, and he gives a few examples. So, for instance, the commandments, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the truth I want you to hear today. The harm in coveting is that I hurt my neighbor. So what's the, big, what's the big deal with coveting anyway? It's not a victimless crime. The harm in coveting is that I hurt my neighbor. Now, I can read your minds, some of you, and I know some of you are thinking this. Sure, maybe I struggle with materialism. Sure, maybe I become dissatisfied and I shouldn't be dissatisfied. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, coveting is something that enters my mind on occasion, but I've never taken anything. I've never actually harmed harmed my neighbor or hurt my neighbor by coveting. So I, 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 how am I taking anything? Coveting always leads to taking, and I can take from my neighbor in a myriad of ways. We take someone's joy by not rejoicing with them. It's really hard to rejoice with someone who just celebrated an anniversary if I just got divorced, right? I mean, it's, I, I, I withhold my rejoicing of someone else when I'm coveting a situation that they have, and it becomes easy to rejoice in their downfall. Here's another one. We, we, uh, we take someone's reputation by gossiping about them. It can be a zero-sum game, right? There's only so much respect that there is in the world. I, we know that's not true, but we can feel sometimes there's only so much respect out there, and if that person has more respect than me, then I need to bring down their respect. I need to gossip about them so that I will be thought of in a more positive light, right? I, I can take from someone by tearing down their reputation. We take by withholding. I can fail to mourn with someone who has just gone through something hard because there's a piece of me that's almost glad they did right? We take from others by stealing credit from them. I can steal credit for that sale so I can get the commission. I can, I can steal credit for that idea so my boss will think more highly of me and less highly of them. We, we can take credit from others. We can take from others by treating them as objects. If I covet, then I'm not really seeing you. I'm, I'm seeing you for what you have. I'm seeing you as someone who owns something or, or has a situation, a circumstance that I want, and, and you become objectified. I take from you by not allowing a relationship to happen, by not allowing an opportunity to happen that could happen because I want something from you. You're an object at this point. I am taking that from you. I can take away an opportunity for a deeper relationship with God because when I covet, what I'm, what I'm actually saying in my heart of hearts is, God, this isn't fair. God, you haven't given me something that I deserve. Or God, th th this is something that can happen. I can take from my own relationship with God, which in fact, in turn, affects my neighbor as well. The harm in coveting is that I hurt my neighbor. Coveting always leads to taking when I covet the wrong thing. Covetousness can separate. It can isolate. It creates a protective attitude. See, covet, take, and hide. Here, real briefly, there's another couple of, uh, there's, the, there's the pattern. Here's another, another couple of examples I want to show you. This is the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. That was supposed to happen when the father died, right, that he got his inheritance. But no, give me my inheritance early. He saw, he coveted, and so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. He goes on to say this. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I'm starving to death. So I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. I wish I could take more time to explain this, but what happened is the younger son, he, he saw, 
he coveted and he took what what should have been his in the future but he took it right away and he took away a relationship with his father and then he hid he came back home to his father with shame tucking his tail hiding 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 who he really was to his father here's another example it's the example of judas when he betrays jesus then one of the twelve who was called judas iscariot he went to the chief priest and asked what are you willing to give me if i deliver this jesus over to you so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver and when judas had who had betrayed him saw that jesus was condemned he was seized with remorse this is where the hiding happens and returned the 30 pieces of silver i won't read the rest of it but he goes out and hangs himself he takes his own life see covet take and hide I think I've made a convincing enough argument that covetousness will ruin you, it'll wreck you, and it leads you to taking, it eventually leads you to hiding, and the process repeats itself. I think I've made a compelling argument, hopefully I have, that just because I have doesn't mean that I'll be happy. Hopefully I've made a good enough case that, uh, that, that the harm in coveting is that you hurt your neighbor. So here's the question I have for you. Do you want to end this spiral of coveting that you may tend to find yourself in? If you do, here's what I want to share with you. What is the cure for coveting? The cure for coveting is that I need to covet something better. Because the truth is, I don't really want more money. You don't really want more money. You know that, right? What you really want when you see someone else who has more money than you is that you want to have enough to take care of your own family, to take care of your your own life, and maybe have a little bit extra so that you can take care of other people. And that's what's going to truly bring you happiness. Having more money will not do that. There's, There's no magic banana for that. You don't really want someone else's job. I know you think you do. You want that person's role. You want that person's position. You want that person's job. But the truth is, you see that they have a role that other people are, are helped by. They, their, their job makes a difference. It, it matters in other people's lives. And, and, and you want to do something that matters and makes a difference in this world. And that's not a bad thing to covet. But it's masked. It's veiled in this idea that I want their job. I want their role. I want their position. I want their authority. You don't really want your coworker's house. I know it's a nice place and they have people over, but the truth is you go over with all your friends and stuff and, you, and what you see is the relationships that they have and the generosity that they show when they open up their house. And you really want to be that kind of person. You don't actually want their house. Don't envy your neighbor. You just want to be able to host and, and, and to, to be generous with other people. That's, that's what you really want and what will truly bring you happiness to have the, that network of relationships. See, covet, take, and hide. If we don't covet the right thing, we can fall prey to this pattern. I've seen it happen with pastors. I want a bigger church. I want more people to, to, so I can influence. It's masked in this idea that that's, that's why I want a bigger church. And then they end up getting that position, and they're just stressed out, and there's all this stuff they got to deal with, and it <laughs> there's no magic banana. There's no magic banana. You have to get rid of the monkey brain and start looking and thinking like a disciple. So let's go back to this pattern. I see. You can't help what you see. Right? You can't magically stop seeing. I guess you could pluck your eyes out. There's a verse that talks about that in a different context. But you can't help but see things. And, and you're going to be shaped every day by what we allow ourselves to see. But here's the deal. We can change how we view things. We can change what we are looking for when we see. You see, if I truly want to be a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, as Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, if I really want to be that kind of person, there are certain disciplines that I can put in place in my everyday life that's going to lead me to see that. If I want to be the kind of person who is, who is generous with other people, then there are certain things that I can do in my life that set me up to see other people's needs rather than see what other people have and I don't have, right? There are things that I can do to see differently. And here's something that, that I've been thinking about and that I would encourage you to think about. 
what are we training, if you're a parent, what are you training your kids to desire, right? As with Christmas coming up, there's two different ways we can approach this. We can, we can give our kids a $20 bill and say, hey, I want you to think about something you can give and buy for someone else. Think of something special you could buy for your sibling or your aunt or your dad or, you, you know, what are, mom, what, whatever the case is. We can do that, or we can hand them the Target magazine and a Sharpie and say, here, here sweetheart, circle what you want. Now, each of those two things is, is training our kids to covet a certain thing. Which one are we training our kids in? Here's another example. Deb Hinkle and I have been talking about this in recent weeks. We, 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 have this, we have this national epidemic, a spiritual epidemic going on, where young adults are, are graduating from high school and leaving the church. And several religious leaders are scratching their heads going, what is going on? And, and research has shown that the primary reason why young adults are, are leaving the church after growing up in church, one of the primary reasons is that they grew up in a church experience that was really catered to them. And they never experienced an intergenerational worship service with, with other adults. And this can happen here. See, here at Hershey Free, what we do is we intentionally have youth group. We have core only for one hour on a Sunday morning. Okay, that program is at 1030. And the intention behind that, the reason we don't offer it both, really, is because we want for families to be able to come and worship together in, in a real worship service with their entire church family, with all the generations. We want them to be able to worship together with their church family at 9, and then they can do the youth group at 1030. Unfortunately, what, what many families do, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but what, what a lot of families do is that they just bring their kids to the youth group thing, and, and they grow up. They, they can grow up their entire young adult, uh, their entire uh, adolescent experience, never experiencing a multi-generational actual church family worship service. And they're not going to graduate high school and magically want that, right? The, the same thing with kids step. We have intentionally built in what we have called traditionally family Sundays, where we, where we close, we, we don't offer kids ministry, because our intention is that families would come to the service. And I, and I realize there's, there's various reasons why some families just don't show up that day, they just don't go to church that day, it's hard to have your kids. I, I, I realize all that, but the truth is that there's many kids growing up, they, they go through church for 18 years, but they never actually, uh, they, they never actually regularly go to a regular adult intergenerational worship service. It's been catered for them, and so they graduate high school, and they go, they're searching around for, you know, where's there a church where they have nine square and I can eat oranges while I, you know, listen to a Bible lesson by my youth pastor. And you're not going to find that, so they drop out of church. It's been catered for them. There's something we can cause our kids to see as they are growing up, and it can lead them to coveting the right thing. Coveting's not bad as long as we covet the right thing. Let's talk about coveting. So we talked about seeing we uh, can control what you are looking for and, and make sure you're seeking the right things. Well, let's talk about coveting for a minute. I can choose to be consumed with receiving, or I can choose to be a generous person. And the more generous I am, the more I will want to be generous. It leads to that. I can choose to be content. There's this uh, passage in the New Testament where Paul writes this, I have learned how to be content. And learning to be content implies that there was effort and learning and time that took place. It takes time and effort to learn to be content. Coveting isn't always a bad thing if we covet the right thing. What I really covet Deep down, if, I'm on, if, I, if I were to search my spirit and be honest with myself, what I really want is a growing understanding of God's will. What I really want deep down inside, even if I don't see it or know it on the, on the surface, is I want a growing awareness of the Holy Spirit in my life. I want good relationships with other people. I, I want to have enough to take care of my own needs and then take care of others. That's what, I, that's what I truly want. And if I can see the right thing, if I can covet the right thing, I can avoid the second half of this process taking place. We already talked about taking. Let's talk about hiding for a minute. When covetous takes over, we take. And when taking happens, we always hide. 
There's many ways that we hide. We hide by burying ourselves. We, we bury ourselves in our work. Or, or people ask us where we've been, and we, we bury ourselves in busyness. Oh, I've been busy. I'm sorry, I'm tired. That kind of thing. We can hide by living in shame. We tell ourselves, yeah, I'm not good enough to have that, or I don't deserve that. Or uh, we, we saw this in the story of the prodigal son, right? He, 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 buried, he, he hid himself in shame as he went back to his father. We hide by running away. We saw this in the story of Judas after he betrayed Jesus. He ran away, ran from his problems, and ended up taking his own life. I covet more fulfillment, so I run from job to job, never able to land anywhere. Some people maybe even covet the perfect church, right? And we saw this, you made me wear a mask, I'm going to go somewhere else. I covet a different church where, you know, things, you do whatever I want. You run the service how I want, right? We, We can even covet a different church sometimes when things aren't exactly our way, rather than sticking with our church family in that way. Sometimes we can actually hide. I covet a better body, so I'm going to hide my eating disorder. I covet a different life, so I'm going to hide behind my TV watching marathons of friends and just wishing that I had that kind of lifestyle. Once upon a time, there was a monkey who lived in a tree, and he was hungry. And he knew that there was a magic banana in the tree, and if he could only find this magic banana, he would never be hungry again. So he ate a banana, he was still hungry. He ate a second banana, and a third banana and a fourth banana, till finally he ate the tenth banana, he was finally full. All of us know there's no such thing as a, as a magic banana. We have to get rid of our monkey brain and start thinking like a disciple. Coveting's not a bad thing, as long as I covet the right thing. Okay. Well, with that said, we are going to enter uh, into a time of communion. So if you have uh, elements with you, you can pause the video right now and go get uh, some juice, or really anything to, to, to drink. What, what this represents is the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. So find something that you can use to represent that. And we're going to take communion together. But before we do that, I want to invite you to commune in a different way. I'd like to call our church. We'll be doing this in the live services too. Uh, our elder team would like to call our church to a time of prayer. And we're, we're going to have a more, a more uh, intentional, focused time of prayer in January. That's going to come. You'll hear more about that. But, but right now, I want us to practice what we want to be doing as a church. And, and enter into a time of prayer. Uh, our, the truth is our, our church is a little different than it was before COVID. I think every organization is. Our church is a little bit smaller. We've had people leave and, uh, and, and not come back or find a different church. Uh, we've, uh, of course, seen some people that it's w- when you're staying home, it's easy to, to, to not come back. It's easy to get into other rhythms where you just sort of disengage with church. And we've, many churches have seen that kind of thing happen. Uh, as a staff member, I'll admit that our, our staff is a little smaller too, and so that can come with moments of, of discouragement. And, and some of you have been in small groups or maybe connect groups where uh, you've, you've been through different turmoil and dissension. Or maybe, maybe your small group didn't quite make it out of COVID, right? It shut down because uh, relationships were fractured or uh, different political things seemed to, seemed to become front and center. And so we want to take a time of intentional prayer and just, just pray for our church. And so here's a, a verse that I want to put before you that I want us to just pray over before we take communion as a church family, even if you're remote. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is a prayer that Paul prays over the church of Philippi. I don't know about you, when I pray, I tend to pray stuff like, you know, Father, take that away or make that better or fix this, but this, this is the kind of thing that Paul prayed for churches. And this is the prayer I want us to pray for our church. And I'm going to actually, we're going we're gonna to cut the screen and give you, give you a, a couple minutes to pray with your family. If you're by yourself, that's fine. If you're with other people in your small group watching this, that, that'd be great too. But just take a few minutes and, and, and pray out loud with those around you, if anybody's around you. And, and, and pray this. Pray that as a church family, that Hershey Free Church, that, 
we'd be known as a people whose love abounds more and more, abounding in love. That, that if we're going to be identified with something, we'd be identified and labeled as those people who have love that abound more and more. Pray that as we enter a new calendar year and, and make adjustments to our, our, our ministry and, and, and budgeting and things like that, but pray that we would have be the kind of people who can discern what is God's will and discern next steps moving forward. And pray that as a church family, we can enter this new season as a church in 2022. Pray that, pray that we can enter this new season blameless before Christ. And, and one day when we stand before Christ and he asks us about our church family, that we can say that we remain blameless through this season, unified and uh, set on what matters in life. So go ahead and find someone to pray with and take a couple minutes and do that. Okay, let me call your attention uh, back up here. Thank you for praying and for taking that verse seriously and praying that. Uh, we're going to take communion now. Uh, before we do, let me read this text from Matthew. Uh, the night before Jesus was crucified, Matthew tells us this, that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he took a cup and he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Let's take communion together, the bread and the cup. Thank you for sharing that with me, church.
let me remind you uh, that as the screen goes blank, you are not being dismissed. In fact, you are being, you are being sent. We want to be a sent people. One last reminder I want to uh, give to you at, th- at this time. We always, in the live services, take up a compassion offering. You can do that online if you'd like to. It goes to the needs of those in our church and community who have physical needs or material needs. I have to do that. But after that, let me just remind you that you are sent. Thank you.